South Dakotans voted for Medicaid expansion. Well, what does the rollout look like? From SDPB Radio, today is Thursday, May 25th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk with proponents of Medicaid expansion about how to get the most out of the voter-approved measure. We'll also ask where obstacles might remain for access to care. We revisit the Battle of Fallujah with a new Frontline film. We'll learn about the U.S. Marines, journalists embedded with them in combat, and the Iraqi civilians who suffered during the fierce and deadly destruction of war. Kevin Wooster considers the power of the petition, plus is your job good enough? A new book explores work and identity. We'll talk with the author later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. Yesterday, we spoke with landowners and a county commissioner about their experiences with Summit Carbon Solutions. Summit is working on a proposed pipeline project that would run through eastern South Dakota. That route affects landowners across the area. Summit has now filed more than 80 lawsuits against landowners to initiate eminent domain on private property. SDPB's Evan Walton has more. Carbon capture pipelines are designed to reduce the overall global impact carbon is having on the environment. Several projects plan to carry carbon dioxide from Midwest ethanol plants to underground storage facilities. Summit Carbon Solutions says it has easement agreements with more than half of the landowners along the South Dakota route. However, Summit has filed more than 80 condemnation lawsuits against those who have turned down the company's offer, and the number of lawsuits continues to rise. Brad Fishbach is a landowner who's being sued by Summit. He helps run Fishbach Farms and says Summit's planned pipeline route will disrupt a number of their farm operations. What Summit is trying to do is cross two of our quarters of ground coming right through our feedlot where we calve and run our cow-calf pairs. And it's like real close to my business. I also run a repair shop and have employees, and it's literally right outside of our shop here. Fishbach says he fears for the safety of his family and his employees in the event of a break in the pipeline. But more importantly, if Summit wins its lawsuit, Fishbach says it could limit the future of his operation. They're literally running kitty corner across our building to the east of our building site. My brother has two boys. I have two boys. They'll never be able to come back here and expand our farm in this position because we will not be able, due to the laws, we will not be allowed to build any closer to the pipeline. The lawsuits come on the heels of a recent court ruling that allows Summit to survey private property without landowner permission. The lawsuits extend to nine counties across the state including Beadle, Brown, Codington, Edmonds, Hand, Kingsbury, Lake, McPherson, and Spink counties. Sabrina Zinner is the Director of Community Relations for Summit Carbon Solutions. She spoke recently at a meeting of the downtown Sioux Falls Rotary Club. Zinner says the lawsuits are simply the next step in gaining easement rights for the proposed pipeline. Some landowners have decided to stop working with us, and we have to continue the process. If those landowners want to come back to the table, we are here. If you know any of those landowners and they want to come back to the table, I have my card. I will share it with you. We want voluntary easements. That is our goal. However, some people say there's a different goal. Jeff Barth is a former Minnehaha County Commissioner. 
While speaking at the Rotary meeting, he described what he calls intimidation tactics used by pipeline representatives. Sparth says while visiting with a landowner, he heard a company representative make an offer for easement rights. And that's what's going on here. Teams of attorneys, teams of lobbyists, teams of, of agents coming out and, and putting the pressure on people. Another company, Navigator CO2, is behind a similar project called the Heartland Greenway. Navigator has partnered with the nation's largest ethanol producer, South Dakota-based Poet. It will capture the carbon Poet produces. Elizabeth Burns Thompson is the Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for Navigator CO2. She says their project differs from Summit's pipeline because it provides benefits to the state with terminals along the route. Burns Thompson says she likes using the analogy of highway on-ramps and off-ramps to explain the Heartland Greenway's defining differences. So there's a variety of both on-ramps in terms of product coming from a variety of different plants, but also, much like you know, our interstates, a variety of off-ramps such that um, you know, a, a shipper could choose to send some of their CO2 to sequestration and some of it to a terminal for you know, an, a dry ice or a, a bottling company or a, a livestock processing facility. Navigator has not yet filed any imminent domain lawsuits in the state. Burns Thompson says they want to work with landowners and reroute pipelines where necessary. We as companies are incentivized to do as much of the development as is possible in a voluntary fashion, and I will tell you that is how we at Navigator will operate. I cannot make a commitment that there won't be some necessary application of condemnation, but we are working tirelessly to minimize that as much as possible. Burns Thompson encourages members of the public to ask any questions they have about Navigator's carbon pipeline project. Summit and Navigator are still waiting for a final permitting discussion and decision from the state's Public Utilities Commission before beginning construction on their pipelines. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Evan Walton. You saw it on your ballot last year. Maybe you even voted for it. Constitutional Amendment D passed and it expanded the pool of South Dakotans eligible for Medicaid. Specifically, 42,000 people in the state are about to be eligible for health benefits through Medicaid expansion. Who does that impact? How can you apply? Our roundtable is here to answer questions just like that. David Benson is a senior state and local campaigns manager with the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. David, welcome. Thanks for being here. It's a mouthful. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Tanisa Islam is executive director of South Dakota Voices for Peace. Tanisa, welcome back. Thank you for having us. Also around the table, Melissa McCauley, organizer from LEAD. If you don't know what LEAD is, that's an acronym for Leaders Engaged and Determined South Dakota, and they're all here with me in the studio. Um, Melissa, welcome too. Hey, thank you very much for having us. Thanks for being flexible and stepping in as we work on some other connections. It's nice that you're here in person. And I want to start with you, Tanisa, and we'll go back a little bit to the efforts um, at the, you know, with the petition drives and getting this on the ballot, there were many people that were for it. Certainly there were opponents as well. What does this say to you before we get into the brass tacks of this about direct democracy in South Dakota and how it works? Oh, that's a big I question. I just got to make you <laughs> go, go political first. That's a big yeah. question. Thanks for that question, Lori. You're so welcome. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is democracy in action, right? It really brought together people across political lines, you know, on an issue that impacts so many of us in the state. 
Of course, at Voices for Peace, we concentrate on multilingual civic engagement. So we were out there door knocking, sending out flyers, uh, talking to immigrant-owned business owners about, you know, what this initiative was, how we get it to pass, getting people registered to vote. I mean, for us, it was everything we loved doing wrapped up into one box with a big bow tie on it because when people have something that impacts them they will engage Mm. uh, rather than like you know an amorphous idea of your vote matters so we really saw that tying medicaid expansion to civic engagement was how we got um, a lot of people involved for the first time in the process. Yeah. David, we were not uh, the last state to expand Medicaid, but many, many states had done this before us. Why was your organization a proponent of this bill? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're down to 10 states across the country that haven't expanded Medicaid. Uh, North Carolina came just after South Dakota via legislative process. And so ACS can, uh, the organization that I'm part of, uh, we've been a long champion of expanding access to affordable health care coverage. And for us, uh, expanding Medicaid and creating access to that health care coverage is going to save lives, is going to give folks access to a doctor so they can get those preventive screenings. It's going to have a reduction to that risk of, of absorbing medical debt. Uh, in addition, you know, one of the things that we really talked a lot about is the impact it's going to have on rural areas in South Dakota and to ensure that those rural hospitals remain open, which can also serve as an economic driver. And the last time I was in studio with you before Election Day, which feels like a lifetime ago, right. you know, we talked a lot about uh, the benefits that we're going to be seeing here in the state. And so that's why we're just incredibly excited for implementation to start in July 1st of this year. Uh, folks can start enrolling that would be eligible uh, as early as June 1st, which is coming up this next week. And so we're incredibly proud of the work that we and, and other partner organizations across the state, uh, along with having 56% support of South Dakota voters, having a strong sign that folks agree that it's important that we provide meaningful access to health care coverage for a lot of working South Dakotans across the state. We're going to go back to the idea of meaningful access. Absolutely. Because if you don't know about it, if it's complicated to sign up, if you're intimidated by going to a doctor, if you don't speak a language, um, if you have trouble logging on and having internet access, then there are all potential obstacles coming up. Melissa, tell us a little bit about uh, LEAD and your participation in the political process, and then I really want to get into like what happens next. Yeah, thank you. Um, actually, in our coalition, um, we've kind of taken on the part of trying to get out there in the community. You know, we have over 3,000 followers just in lead, and this is going to be impacting some of our followers, um, <clears throat> but also people that are not part of lead as well. So what we've been trying to do is really impact our communities with education, exactly about what you're talking about, because it is confusing. Or am I getting disenrolled? How do I get back enrolled? So we've really been trying to reach uh, communities and say, hey, we're here. Let's get you to a navigator um, so they can help you with those questions that you have. Um, but a lot of it is education about when you're disenrolled, when you can be re-enrolled, and how that works. And if you're now covered, because it is Medicaid expansion. Yeah. So it's a big deal. All right, let's talk about the unwinding period. There are some people, are they being notified somehow? What exactly is happening? Well, so what are you hearing from folks? So yeah, they are. they will be receiving a letter um, saying, hey, you're going to be disenrolled. 
um, and here's your chance to get re-enrolled uh, or if you're eligible. So they have to go to the website to make sure that they're eligible. Um, and if they can get re-enrolled, uh, June 1st is when they're starting the enrollment. Um, however, there's... They're disenrolled because of pandemic policies. Correct. Okay. Uh, in some cases. David, do you want to... So during the pandemic, Congress put in place where uh, the states would need to require continuous coverage requirement. And so that's being sunset back in, in April. And so every state and Medicaid agency is going through the process of redetermination. And so that's what DSS is going through right now. And so this has this is not related to Medicaid expansion, except South Dakota is in a unique situation. Right. Because for those that are, you know, every individual that, that is part of Medicaid or CHIP is going to be redetermination, re redetermined whether they are still eligible. And so we're going to have a pocket of estimates about 20,000 South Dakotans that are going to be found ineligible due to this unwinding process uh, with a continuous coverage requirement no longer being in place. And so about half of that, of that 20,000, would qualify for Medicaid expansion in July. Okay. And so it's been really important for uh, advocacy groups and, and patient groups to ensure that folks are updating their information with DSS. Uh, because they're all being notified, but they're being notified in a variety of ways. And if their address has changed, they don't get that mail. And so that's where we're certainly pushing the, the, the state to do everything in their power to ensure that continuity of care is taking place. So if you're a cancer patient, you don't want to be in a situation where you're just not getting mail or a text message or an email to just update your information if you're eligible uh, so you can have that continuous coverage. And so for those that would be benefiting from Medicaid expansion, uh, again, that 10 to 12,000 that are going to be disenrolled, unfortunately, the state made a decision that they were not going to carry that through to July, and some individuals are already losing their coverage uh, already that would then be uh, able to qualify for Medicaid expansion July 1st. Okay, so from a Cancer Action Network perspective, you've gotten a diagnosis, you're in the middle of treatment, now you're being disenrolled, and there's a gap. You don't want to stop your treatment. No but you also don't want to incur costs that you'll never be able to pay. What do you do? Well, that's that's a very challenging and uh, uh, difficult situation that some folks ho uh, hopefully are not going to find themselves in, but there certainly is that risk. Uh, that individuals that have benefited from having Medicaid uh, health insurance during the pandemic that are found to be ineligible and will be dropped from coverage, and they'll have to wait uh, to be eligible for Medicaid in July if they if they were to qualify. So we're, we're dealing with the world that we've been dealing with uh, where folks have limited options for that health care uh, coverage. Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, we're incredibly proud again uh, that voters decided this is something we want to do in the state. We want to provide that option that we're providing. But as I mentioned, those 10 remaining states that have not expanded Medicaid, you're going to find thousands of cancer patients that are going to be stuck in that situation that are going to be kicked off Medicaid that won't have any viable options to pursue because they haven't expanded Medicaid. And so again, fortunately in South Dakota, we at least have that opportunity in July, but we are dealing with this window that we could have avoided uh, for those that are going to be uh, losing that continuous coverage through Medicaid. Who wants to address who is eligible July 1st and the process of finding out if you're eligible? Uh, everyone's looking at me. So uh, <laughs> the key thing is, you know, I, I think the easiest thing that I would suggest folks do is if they're not already reaching out to the Department of uh, Social Services is go to the website getcoveredsouthdakota.org uh, or to call uh, the helpline at 211. And those are going to be two great uh, starting points for folks to start that process to update your information or to find a navigator uh, to get the resources you need. And again, that's getcoveredsouthdakota.org or calling the helpline at 211. 
Uh, again, it's just ensuring that the Medicaid agency has the updated information and then can walk through uh, the process of, of knowing whether you qualify for Medicaid. And again, I want to stress, this is not just about adults. This is also for children that are mm -hmm. going to lose access due to this Medicaid unwinding. So there's going to be a, a large percentage of children that are going to have to go through the same process uh, to ensure that they're continuing to have that health care coverage. Yeah. Now, this gets a little scary. <laughs> for I have health insurance. I have uh, what I consider to be quite good health insurance. And there's nothing I hate more than navigating the explanation of benefits and looking at things. And I do everything I can to make it enjoyable. You know, I'm going to get a little nice glass of ice water. I'm going to light a candle. I'm going like, to do everything to make this less torturous for me. And I'm one of the privileged people who has access to this. Talk a little bit about um, reaching out for help, Melissa, getting in touch with a navigator. Like, you don't have to do this alone. 100%. Uh, so what we've really focused on is uh, one specific group is our unhoused population. So with some of that community, they might not receive their mail on a normal basis. So what we've tried to do is uh, extend information out to them, but also provide nav navigator information. Um, saying, hey, these are the these are the places, these are the people that will be able to help you navigate through that. Because you're 100% right. It is so hard, um, especially if you don't have every, <laughs> not, like you, you don't know what all this means. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to make sure people feel comfortable, that they know, hey, this is what I'm going in for. I'm able to, to get covered, so let's do this. Um, the most important thing is to have those people feel like, okay, I am doing, I'm feeling comfortable. I want to give all my information and, and get enrolled because like David said, can't, you know, cancer happens to everybody. It does not discriminate at all. Um, so that kind of stuff, we need to make sure people are covered because this is going to impact not just our houseless population. It could impact our neighbor down the street. We don't know what happens or what, what their life is like. So having the navigators, uh, in different locations is going to be huge and it's going to be uh, it's going to be challenging at times but we can do it we can we can do the hard things yeah we can <laughs> with help we we don't have to do it alone tanisa for people who are new to sioux falls especially people whose english is not their first language what kind of assistance do they have um, not much. I mean, we're a very small nonprofit organization getting funding through our coalition partner, ACS CAN, to help educate multilingual communities. But, you know, we're a trusted organization in multilingual communities. We're starting to get calls from people who have been disenrolled but didn't understand what was going on because all of the notices from DSS are in English. Um, and we tried to circumvent that by meeting with DSS representatives before unwinding started, and they assured us that language access was possible um, by just asking for it. But unfortunately, that is not the case that we're hearing from clients who are calling us. But the great thing about our coalition are these navigators who are with CHAD. Um, so we can educate the community. CHAD. CHAD is the Community Health Worker Association of the Dakotas. Okay. So that's the great thing about our coalition is we're educating, we're educating multilingual communities, we're focusing on unhoused populations, we're focusing on really specific areas, but then we can refer everyone over to CHAD, and then we at Voices for Peace can help with that 
soft handoff by translating for our clients who are calling us and making sure that all that information is getting to the navigator because unfortunately um, DSS is not able to meet the needs of multilingual communities right now. Um, David, this is something that we heard from the opponents of Medicaid expansion was that there would be a burden, there would it would be very difficult to implement in the state of South Dakota, as said Governor Christy Noem said, I will obey the will of the people and we'll get this done. Um, I have not reached out to DSS yet. We will do that so that we can hear their perspective. But um, what kind of benefits, as this works, as it rolls out and is effective, what kind of benefits can people expect if they are eligible? What's what's on the other side of, you know, because I feel like we're kind of making it like, oh, it's really hard. But like, what's on the other side? And how does it benefit you as a, you know, as a healthy person? <laughs> Well, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you have a certain type of health insurance. And so it's, it works very similar to uh, health insurance that, that most folks are, are aware of. Uh, there is a, a copay uh, for a variety of services, very low, but there is uh, that, that part of the, the process. And I, I think that's where uh, for individuals to know that there is an option if, if they qualify and we're, you're having that coverage gap or we're, we're closing that coverage gap, fortunately, starting in July uh, with Medicaid expansion, that if if uh, you qualify for that or if you, if you don't qualify for Medica- Medicaid expansion, you can go onto the marketplace and there's a variety of, of insurance plans at that route or you're through your employer. But just another uh, option for folks in the state of South Dakota that, that we're providing that we're you know, almost 10 years behind in, in doing. So it, for us, for, for our organization to, to have the ability for folks to know that going to a doctor, to have that screening, to know that that follow-up care is available to you because you have that health insurance, uh, that makes a world of difference. And we, we, we know that uh, if individuals do not have that health insurance option, they're less likely to have that follow-up care because they're, they're concerned. And, and one of our volunteers from Volunteers often cited a story when she was a practicing physician of an individual that came in and she had such a fear of, of the additional treatment that she said, I'm not going to bankrupt my family. And fortunately, because of Medicaid expansion and the work of, of the voters and improving Medicaid expansion, that scenario can't play out again. That individual, uh, by qualifying for Medicaid expansion, will be able to seek that treatment, get that care. And if you're catching cancer earlier, it's a much uh, greater uh, chance that you're going to survive and, again, not experience that medical debt. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there for now. But, again, 211, if you want to talk to somebody about the resources available, getcoveredsouthdakota.org. It does take some work. I'm not going to lie to you, but you don't have to do it alone. And on the other side is a full understanding of the benefits that are available to you or to the people you love. David Benson is with the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Tanisa Islam is Executive Director of South Dakota Voices for Peace. And Melissa McCauley is with LEAD, Leaders Engaged and Determined South Dakota. Melissa, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. David, thank you. Thank you. Tanisa, thanks. Thanks. We'll take a break. When we come back, the Battle of Fallujah on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This spring marks the 20-year anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. The 2020 Frontline documentary, you might remember, Once Upon a Time in Iraq, told the story of the war through in-person interviews with the people who lived it. And now, a follow-up documentary, Once Upon a Time in Iraq, Fallujah, 
Director James Blumel zeroes in on one of the Iraq War's defining and deadly episode. He's with me now. Um, James, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks. I appreciate your patience in making this connection, and I appreciate the work that you did on this documentary. This is, for the U.S. Marines, the bloodiest battle since Way City in Vietnam. It is, I'm a U.S. Marine. I served um, years ago, not in combat, but it is, uh, has become something that is so legendary in the U.S. Marine Corps dialogue that it will never be forgotten. And um, editorializing a little bit here, but your work in showing this from multiple angles is just so important, I think, to the military community, as well as civilians who are trying to understand what happened. So first of all, thank you for doing the work on this battle. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for, for, for watching it and, and, and liking it. Tell me a little bit about the journalists who are embedded with the 8th Marines and how it was a little rocky at first, that, that relationship between New York Times reporters and uh, photographer Ashley Gilbertson and the Marines themselves. What did you learn? Well, I mean, the, 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 the two journalists were, were, were two incredibly experienced journalists. There's Dexter Filkins, who, who's at that point writing for the New York Times, and, and, and the photographer Ashley Gilbertson. Um, and, they, and they wanted to cover a Fallujah, but you had to embed. You, you, you couldn't just do this uh, freelance. You couldn't just rock up there, you know, um, without without the um, without sort of attaching yourself to to uh, to the military in some sort of way. Um, and that and that led to quite a sort of complex relationship because because when 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 they when they turn up, the Marines are you know they they've been trained together, they've been fighting together, and they're a very tight knit community by that point. And you, now you've got two strangers walking in. And there's there's suspicion of strangers. Um, uh, what, what are they going to be saying? Are they going to be watching for our mistakes? Uh, you know, who are these guys? And um, and over the course of, of of that battle, of course, that relationship becomes cemented when they realise that these two journalists were in there just as much as they were. And at some point, there's a moment where the journalists realize that nobody back home cares and they might be the only people who are telling this story to the world. How does that change the dynamic between journalist and uh, Marine? I mean, I think like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not entirely sure what was in, what was in everyone's heads, but I think, I think that, that there was a, there, there was, there was a, that there became a huge amount of mutual respect. I think I think the journalists arrived with respect, and they had to earn that respect from the, from the Marines that were that were there. Um, but once 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 everyone was under fire, and they realised that the journalists were out there just trying to sort of document and tell the truth and what what these Marines were sort of going through, um, I think that's when that's when that sort of um, so that 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 you know, they talk. They talk. They, they talk about that sort of, uh, you know, that, that that sort of brother relationship that that, that they, they 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 let they let Dexter and, and Ashley in. Yeah. At, at the beginning of this battle, the U.S. military broadcast. They dropped flyers in the town and in the neighborhood, saying, "We're coming. This is when we're coming." 
If you are a civilian, if you are a non-combatant, leave. This is a a strategic decision. It makes it difficult because you're broadcasting, you know, your military intentions. Not everyone can leave. There are people who are not able to get out. Tell us about this family that you talked to and what their experience was like when the bombs started to fall. Yeah, that, that, that's right. They, they, they did. They did drop flies. They, they did announce that they would be invading. They gave they gave a they gave a date when the invasion would happen. Uh, there was no surprise to this invasion, um, which is maybe unusual. But but I think in the circumstances, Fallujah was a was a living, working town. And, and although Al Qaeda were were, were 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 had sort of taken over, there was still sort of lots of sort of innocent Iraqis sort of just caught there. And and I think that what they were hoping was that, that most of them would be able to leave. Of course, there, there is some for economic reasons that just found that impossible. And they have to sort of dig in and brace themselves. And um, and this this one particular family that we feature in the documentary um, got got caught in that crossfire, that, that, that initial bombing campaign before the, Marine, before the Marines go in um, that Fallujah was bombed from the air, and and that's when um, that's when this, this this family sort of sort of suffered uh, sort of quite quite a horrific injury to to, to, to um, Nidal, the mother, and her son Mustafa, who was just a baby. Yeah, I want to go back to this idea, not to belabor the point, but I was looking up at, on Marine Corps websites the. The media that they put out about the Battle of Fallujah, the first battle, second battle, how they are remembering their own history. There's rock music. There's motivational pre-combat speeches. There's, you know, kill the enemy. You will breathe fire. There's all these things that are very, you know, sort of Marine Corps-esque that's very familiar to me as a veteran. And I thought that in this documentary, you did an excellent job of portraying that, portraying that the Marines were also afraid portraying the impact of their actions on civilians and then also their really insane courage in trying to, I mean, there's going to be 26 bomb factories that they find and and arms caches and torture chambers and and 1,200 insurgents will be killed. So they're very focused on the mission, but at the end, one of them says, hey, I just want my friends back at this point. Yeah. How did you balance that as a filmmaker without making someone a villain or a hero but yet telling a complete story. I think because no, no one's intention at all was to do anything anything bad. Fallujah, Fallujah was 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 a. I mean, it was a. It was it, it was a city that Al Qaeda were using to make to make car bombs and, and ship them straight to Baghdad, and, and it's not it's not far away. Um, and those car bombs were were were, were, were hurting you know lots of people, Iraqis too. Um, and, and 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 the fight was with Al Qaeda. And I think the Marines, I suspect quite rightly, thought that was that was the right fight. Um, no, none of them, none of them went in there to to hurt civilians. That 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 was the point of the leafleting. That was the point of the, of the warning uh, to try to try and have a, a, as few civilian casualties as possible. But when it does happen, of course, that haunts people because people are human, and that was never their intention. Um, and you know, you you can you can. A, a, a marine is is just like anyone else. That they 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 have these feelings too. I think, yeah. um, and I think that was an important I- important complexity to show. Yeah. Well done. 
Once Upon a Time in Iraq, Fallujah. It's at pbs.org slash frontline. Um, you can stream it now online. It's also in the PBS video app. And I've been talking with the film's director, James Blumel. Um, really thank you for the work, and we really appreciate it. I really appreciate taking the time to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Like many South Dakotans, journalist Kevin Wooster is used to being asked to sign petitions to get initiated measures and state constitutional amendments on the South Dakota ballot. As a journalist who writes about the issues, he typically declines to participate in the petition process, which leads to some interesting conversations with the people holding the clipboards. He writes about a recent interaction for SDPB Online. You can find it at sdpb.org slash Wooster. And he is joining me now from our Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in SDPB's Rapid City offices. Kevin, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, Laurie, are you a registered voter in South Dakota? <laughs> I am indeed, sir. <laughs> I, could I get you to sign this petition? No, I cannot, no. Okay. All right, so explain to people why journalists tend, I mean, it, there's no rule that says you can't sign a petition. I have signed them in the past, but I, like you, I, I, ha, I stopped because of the work that I do today. Help, help listeners know why we say no to signing those petitions. Well, if you're, if you're going to uh, cover an issue, these are usually issues of uh, significance, and many of them high profile, some of them emotional, and somebody sees your name on a petition, uh, somebody from one side or the other, I can guarantee you somebody's going to say you shouldn't be writing about this because you're biased. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, we could get into a long, separate discussion about <laughs> bias and fairness, which are mm. two different things, because uh, you can certainly be biased and still be fair in the way you do your job as a professional. But uh, I never felt comfortable with signing them. And uh, for years, I would just automatically say, I'm a reporter, I don't sign petitions. And most of the time, most of the petition carriers would say, oh, okay. And some of them would argue a little bit. Well, you're yeah. still a citizen. You still yeah. have an obligation. <laughs> You know, I've had those uh, I've had those experiences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, you know, some of them got a little pushy and uh -huh. I say, well, uh, you know, that I've made my choice. Why don't you just leave me alone so I could go get my ice cream cone? <laughs> but uh, but on, in other times we've had an interesting conversation about that. Yeah. You know? And then what I love about this is that you go on and really write in depth about open primaries and, and what they need and the arguments for and against them. Tell me a little bit about what you were being asked to sign and why uh, it's such an interesting sort of political conversation right now. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm at a point now where I call myself a kind of a senior journalist of sorts or a kind of a reporter or a washed-up old reporter who <laughs> has a blog. That's, that's one of my... Uh, <laughs> and I, I think I have the... You know, I'm in a position now where I can offer more opinions than I used to offer and take positions on things. So, but I hadn't yet written anything about open primaries since they've came out. They've they've come out with their their campaign and made their announcements, and and I just didn't feel comfortable signing before I'd written something. Mm -hmm. And the 
this is a, I think, a, and it was a double-edged petition carrier there because she also had a no-labels petition, which then she asked me to sign. And I absolutely said I'm not signing that because I've written about that no-labels issue on the blog. We've had that conversation. Right. And my concern is if they get a third-party presidential candidate on the ballot who's likely to be a centrist, Donald Trump, presuming he wins the primary, is the next president again. So I said I won't sign that. And yet we had a conversation about that, too. You know, a lot of these petition carriers are really bright and they're really well informed and they're really passionate. And and so it's kind of fun to to have an exchange with them. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this process. And usually I'm kind of eavesdropping on it when the petition holder asking for signatures, they're not all well informed, of course, but many of them really are. And you will hear you can sit back and listen and really hear what's important to the voters um, by based on what they ask, I remember Medicaid expansion, just the confusion that voters were sort of taking to the petition characters. This is all part of the, the democratic process in South Dakota. The politics is happening right on the steps of the post office or the driver's license bureau. It is, and it's really something that you hope people, I know it's hard sometimes, you're busy, you're running back and forth, you've got a lot going on and there's somebody that kind of interrupts your day or interrupts mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. And you hope people will be patient with that because of how important it is, and especially in states like ours where the where the citizen-initiated ballot measures are so important, the citizen-referred laws are so important and have been for so long that you'll stop. And, you know, some of these people suffer verbal abuse, some of them physical intimidation. Mm-hmm. Some, some places there have even been physical altercations, you know, and... And so you you hope people understand that how this is part of who we are as a nation. Yeah. Don't do that. No physical altercations, please. All right. So you can read all about uh, open primaries. And really, Kevin does a great job of of bringing out a lot of facts and evidence in this blog post. It's at sdpb.org slash Wooster. If it's not up yet, it'll be up soon. Kevin Wooster, thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate it. And thank you for that qualifier, because sometimes I'm late getting it up. Right, you have a, You can read. There's lots for there's lots for you to read there. Just just read around until the new post comes up. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. All right. Americans work. We work a lot. Unless you're at a family business or you work from home, you likely spend more time with your coworkers than you do with your own family. Journalist Simone Stoltzoff studied this phenomenon and the myths that keep us working long hours, sometimes even at jobs we just don't like that much. He is the author of a book called The Good Enough Job. Simo is with me on the phone to talk about shifting the orbit of our lives away from being centered on work or at least centered just on work. Welcome. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I want to, I'm actually working on a project about working, and you mentioned Studs Terkel and the introduction of this book, and he is one of my heroes, and his book on working and talking to people about what they think about their work versus what we think about it now, something has happened in our minds where work is our identity. What did you learn about that transition in American culture? Yeah, it's, we're coming up on the 50-year anniversary of Studs' iconic piece of work that so many journalists like myself are building <laughs> right. upon. 
And a lot has changed since, you know, the 70s when that book came out. For one, we've seen the precipitous decline of other institutions that once gave our lives meaning and identity, like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups. And yet with the decline of some of these institutions, the need for purpose and identity and meaning remain. And many Americans have turned to the place where they spend the majority of the time, you know, the workplace, to try and fulfill some of these things that might have once been fulfilled by a religious institution or by the Moose Club in, in another era. Yeah, we want to have that purpose. And one of and you do this by talking to people about their jobs. And early in the book, it might even be the first chapter, you have this chef who is a business, you know, she's an entrepreneur. And she basically says her desire to sort of fuse her identity with a, a job that mattered opened the door for abuse at work, opened the door for her to be taken advantage of financially um, to seek validation from somebody who really w- didn't have her best interests at heart. How many, you know, like you interviewed more than 100 people for this, I think, zeroing in on boundaries and abuse and what it can do to you if you lose that balance. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think it's a natural tendency to look to work for some sort of meaning or identity. But I think it is a very risky game if it is your sole source of identity and meaning. And I think that was the case with, you know, the chef. She, in many ways, represents the pinnacle of having found a dream job working at a three-star Michelin restaurant and then going into business with a celebrity chef. But as she found, it can be a precarious platform to balance on when it is the only source of meaning and identity in your life. And I think this was the case for many people during the pandemic where they found out if their work was their sole source of identity and meaning and they lost their work or their work changed in some material way, what's, what's left? And so I think the expectations that we place on our jobs are not always delivered on by what is first and foremost an economic contract. And we can lose sight of that, especially in lines of work that are quote-unquote passion jobs or labors of love, they can set workers up for the conditions that lead to exploitation. Yeah, I I remember interviewing somebody about um, nursing assistants, and he said, these people are just angels. And I thought, well, that's risky. (laughs) Because if, you know, they were underpaid, they were walking away from the job because of working nights and weekends and long shifts and how they were treated. And there was this sense that you are a good soul if you're doing this work, Mm. which would mean if you didn't want to, then maybe you weren't that good of a person. Again, this man didn't mean anything bad by that, but we have sort of connected the two in in some ways. How do we deprioritize work and have a healthy relationship with it by also prioritizing our lives? Yeah, I think what that man said is resonant across many different industries, particularly industries that are seen as, you know, on the right side of justice or do-gooder yeah. industries, things like education or healthcare or the nonprofit sector. And, you know, the problem, you know, we, we saw this during the pandemic where teachers were told, on one hand, you're doing God's work, and in the same breath to just make do with what you have. Or, you know, healthcare workers were told that they are essential and yet rarely given compensation or protections that were commensurate with the severity of the work that they were doing. 
As an alternative, I, I don't think that we necessarily have to care less about our jobs. But I think it's incumbent on each of us to diversify our meaning and identity beyond just what we do for work. And so that means actively investing in things like our relationships, our local communities, our, our interests and our hobbies and our passions so that we can reinforce the idea that we are more than just workers. We are also neighbors and friends and siblings and parents and citizens. And all of those identities deserve attention and energy as well. Yeah, and that creates resilience, you argue, because if there is a problem in one area, you have strength built up in another area, right? Yeah, you know, and the research really backs us up. It says that people with greater what they call self-complexity, people mm-hmm. who have developed different sides of themselves, are more resilient in the face of change. And we all know this sort of on a personal level. If you are rising and falling with your professional accomplishments and your boss says something disparaging or you have a bad day at work, it can very easily spill over into all the facets of your life unless you have other sources of identity and meaning to balance it out. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of this book, I'll be honest, is when you finish the book and then you say, well, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> I've been working you know, a full-time job and working on this book for so long. Um, this is something that I won't say is easy for you, but you have had periods of your life where you have prioritized things other than a paying job, and that has worked for you. There's hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for a number of years, I worked as a newsroom reporter and as a journalist, and I actually left the industry to go join a design firm. Mm-hmm. And it was through the process of leaving journalism that my writing career began to take off. You know, there's a kind of irony in that. <laughs> You know, the cliche is that you, you write the book that you need to read. Right. And in many ways, I'm you know, trying to take my own advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is a, it can be a, a struggle. It's a, it's a lifelong piece of work to determine what relationship we want to have with our jobs. Yeah. And I don't think it's fixed. I think it's, it's variable over time. Yeah. The book is called The Good Enough Job. I've been talking with Simone Stoltzoff, and we'll put a link up on our website. Thanks, Simo. Thanks for being here.